Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I am Amanda Carpenter sitting in for Charlie Sykes for another Summer Monday with Will Salatin. But, well, I looked outside today and I fear the summer is winding down quickly. I, I'm so sad that you used the word fear. Don't you love the fall? I love the fall, Amanda. I do. I guess, you know what? I'm not ready for my kids to go back to school. I feel like it's been a short summer with them. It's been so great because they're getting a little bit older now. You know, my my son is cooking. He's nine. He's getting hungrier, which is alarming. He's eating enormous amounts. But um, it's been very nice for me because I have always done all the cooking for our family. My husband is a saint. He does all the dishes. I've done dishes very rarely in our whole entire marriage. So that's our trade-off. But it's become so much easier because they've taken an interest in cooking. Like I woke up the other morning and my son is making scrambled eggs for his breakfast sandwich, which included an everything bagel, ham, cheese, and the eggs. And I was like, uh, can I have one? And would you believe it? He cooked it for me and it was delicious. And it's probably one of the most amazing things that's happened. So I don't want him to go back to school anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you may have selfish motives, but I applaud you. First of all, I'm I'm super excited to hear that your son likes to cook. And I, I encourage parents all over the world, teach your sons to cook. Some of them won't want to, but some of them will love it. And you just will help to rectify one of the great imbalances in the world about men, men not cooking. Well, you are speaking my language. It is amazing. My husband is wonderful. I'm not ditching on him, but it is amazing to me that some men can go through pretty much their whole lives without knowing or having to cook a meal for a holiday for someone else. Because that means you've gone through your whole life with someone else doing it for you the entire time. And so I am teaching my son to cook. It's going great. My daughter loves to cook. But if you can't get the men to cook, men, you better be really good at dishes and taking out the trash (laughs) and the vacuuming. That's all I have to say about that. Okay. We have a really really great piece on the homepage of The Bulwark today. I really want to encourage everyone to read it because I could talk about it and I could draw the quotes from it, but it would not do the piece justice. Today is the one-year anniversary of the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan. Of course, remember the, the pullout that happened last August. And this is a piece by Lieutenant Colonel from the Air Force, Will Selber, and he was involved in trying to get the people out and having to grapple with the moral choices of choosing who gets assistance, who doesn't. And not only was that hard to go through for him as, you know, a member of the services, but he really talks in great detail about how it's affected him, how it's haunted him. And he explores the concept of something that I, you know, I knew about, but I didn't really understand the concept of moral injury and moral trauma when you are forced to make choices about things that go against your values. And it is absolutely gripping. It is essential reading. And I really think we don't talk enough about the impact these decisions have on the troops when we get in these abstract discussions about the politics of whether this will hurt Joe Biden or not. Have you you had a chance to read it, Will? I have. It's, I hesitate to use the word beautiful. It is a beautiful piece. It is a terrible piece. It is a recollection of the people he left behind, the people he had to leave behind and did not want to. And as you put it so well, a moral trauma. And 
I will tell you as somebody, Charlie always gives me grief about saying I come from a democratic background, but I, I'm very familiar with progressive politics and the way progressive people think and talk. And they are very attuned to pain and anguish and uh, those we leave behind at home. A little bit less so abroad, especially when military intervention is involved. This is an area where when I came to the bulwark, one of the things that I noticed was this deep compassion among my colleagues for people in another country where we were militarily involved. And so here we have the United States military leaving a place and all of these people wrenchingly left behind, many of them killed as a result. And one of the things that Will Selbert gets into is the triumph of evil in Afghanistan after we left. And I would encourage people, progressive people, people who come from a background like mine, read this article at, to get a feel for the cost of what of leaving. And I understand the case for leaving and I support the case for leaving, but you must not morally turn away from the cost of what that was. And what Will Selber captures is that moral cost. And it sounds like the Biden administration will have some kind of memo coming out today. It might be out by the time this podcast is posted, explaining the decision, defending the decision. Of course, we'll all be consumed with that, but please take the time to go read this Selber piece. And if you take anything away from it, if you can't get to it, he talks at one point about going to a cemetery to visit one of his fellow soldiers, who obviously did not make it, and he's there. And he talks about how he's just so used to the idea of people coming up to him and saying, thank you for your service. But something that he took away was a man came up to him as he was at the gravesite and didn't say thank you for your service, but rather said, tell me about your friend. And he listened to the story and grieved with him. And I think that's something we need to do a little more of, is grieving and understanding the loss that these soldiers have suffered, rather than thanking them, shaking their hand, and just simply moving on. So I'll just leave it at that. Um, it's a beautiful piece, as you said, Will. It's an important piece. It's a gripping piece. And I'm very proud that The Bulwark was able to publish it and very thankful that Will trusted The Bulwark to post it. And so moving on, you know, obviously there's a lot to talk about with the primaries coming up and, of course, the Mar-a-Lago search, and we will get to that. But there is a sleeper story that's been bubbling around, I think, for the past year that I want to spend some time on, and that is the Dominion lawsuit against Fox News. The New York Times had a big kind of overview piece of it over the weekend, and at the top it described this this lawsuit as potentially one of the most consequential First Amendment cases in a generation. And what's at stake here is essentially it's a $1.6 billion, billion with a B, suit against Fox News for the lies it spread about Dominion voting systems after the election. And what's really interesting is that the Dominion folks, when you read the suit, they've set up a storyline that makes a lot of sense. This isn't just that Fox News spread lies, but they spread lies for a commercial purpose. And I think we saw some of this in the Alex Jones suit in the previous weeks. But they set up the story that Fox News knew exactly what it was doing because after the election, when Trump was making the case that it was stolen from him and Fox News, you know, they made that call for Arizona, wasn't quite willing to go along for, with it. They saw a loss in viewership to its competitors like OAN and Newsmax, and Fox News freaked out, right? They're always the people that people tune into. 
And so people like, and these are the people named in the suit, Maria Bartiromo, Tucker Carlson, Lou Dobbs, Sean Hannity, and Janine Pirro leaned in to this manufactured story that somehow Dominion had flipped the votes and stolen the election from Donald Trump. And that is how Fox News got its audience back. What do you think of, of this case? Have you? I know you, you've looked at it. I mean, do you think it has the big First Amendment implications that the New York Times is setting up? Well, it certainly has First Amendment implications, and that will be the argument that Fox News makes, um, uh, and it's a, a traditional argument against this kind of this kind of lawsuit. But um, I, I think you've put your finger on how Dominion intends to approach this, and that is that the motive on the side of Fox News was not to express a viewpoint, to con- to allow others to express a viewpoint, the traditional sort of First Amendment argument. The motive was commercial. Now, that is a, an empirically um, testable proposition. And what Dominion is doing in order to verify that the motive was commercial, that is, as you said, to compete with other networks on the right, is that they've, they've, done, they've gone through this discovery process. They're getting emails, they're getting texts within the company, um, they're, they're uh, getting depositions of Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan Murdoch. And what they're trying to show is that the Fox News executives and anchors and people who, who spread the lies about the election knew that they were false, believed they were false, did not care about them, but were basically spreading them because they knew that's what the audience wanted to hear. Um, I don't know if this argument will work. I think it is true. Um, But I'm very interested in the larger purpose of the suit as stated in the the company's original, as the company's meaning Dominion's original complaint, which was they had a couple of lines in this complaint. They said, one was the truth matters. And Mm -hmm. they're absolutely right. And if this lawsuit accomplishes nothing else, I hope it will establish what the truth was, that the Fox people knew that this was bogus, what they were spreading. And the other thing they said was that in the complaint, lies have consequences. Now, what Dominion wants is $1.6 billion in consequences, and I don't know if they'll get that. But if we can establish what the truth was through this lawsuit, through the discovery process, the text, the emails, and if... Fox can be forced to pay some large amount of money as punishment for its cynical lies, then we will, you know, that will be part of the political and cultural process of holding accountable the people who have lied about the 2020 election. Yeah, what makes this case different is that usually when it comes to libel law, defamation claims usually have a single statement, you know, a single lie that was told. But what makes this so different and interesting? is the fact it was repeated again and again, not just by Maria Bartiromo, Sean Hannity, and the top-tier host. When something goes on Fox News with that kind of platform, it gets repeated on digital, it gets repeated on social, it trickles down to all kinds of other networks who lean on Fox News for editorial leadership. I mean, really, in the digital age. And so that $1.6 billion figure sounds like a lot. But when you consider the fact about how often those lies were repeated because of this particular storyline that Fox News, you know, if you believe Dominion, manufactured to regain the audience they were losing, I don't know if it sounds so high. Here's my argument, Amanda. 
it's better than nothing. That's mm-hmm. basically my argument. Well, it's proceeding. I mean, the lawsuit isn't dead. I mean, it is definitely active. Neither side is settling, which is unusual. Depositions, as you mentioned, are being taken now from people like Dana Perino, Steve Ducey, Shepard Smith, who is no longer with the network. And so, I mean, it's got to be a weird place to work right now, right? You are being deposed for the lies your network told while it's actively telling all sorts of other lies about the so-called weapon of the FBI. I mean, that's got to be a real weird workplace to go into. Well, yeah. And, you know, people, over time, what has happened at Fox and similar places is people who care about the truth have moved elsewhere. And people who stayed are those who are interested in the entertainment part of the of the job. Um, I, I hate to say that that's part of the job, but it is an entertainment company of which news is a subset. But, I mean, the, the, the overarching things that need to be accomplished are, one, to establish what the truth was, and secondly, accountability. And I grant you $1.6 maybe it should be more, but right now we have zero. We have very little accountability for people who've lied, very little political accountability. Those people who lied about the elections are winning their primaries, and we have very little financial accountability. So some kind of accountability would be helpful. And I think you also put your finger, Amanda, on uh, a, a very important another very important part of this, which is this cycle of cynicism where the people, in this case at Fox News, anchors at Fox News who know that the election lies are lies, spread them because they knew the audience wanted to hear them. And Amanda, this is exactly the same thing we have going on in the political context where Republican politicians spread lies because they know that's what the base wants to hear. There's no leadership. There's no leadership in the party. There's no leadership at the network to say, despite the fact that our audience wants to hear these lies, we are going to tell them the truth. Okay, so in the background, behind the scenes, you have this Dominion lawsuit advancing against Fox News. And do you remember, was it maybe just a few short weeks ago when there was all this hubbub that the Murdochs were turning against Trump because the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post had published editorials that were sort of critical of him? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I I don't see that happening now. I see all the top-tier hosts talking about how the Mar-a-Lago raid was a weaponization against, you know, Donald Trump and the FBI should be defunded. I, I think that completely disappeared. And then I saw a poll that Trump has a 10-point bump after the search. And I wonder if, again, Fox News for commercial interest is rallying behind the former president. Yeah, I, there's plenty of commercial interest here. Some of it is at Fox News. Some of it is within the Trump organization itself. One of the interviews that I saw on Fox in the last couple of days was Lara Trump. Mm. She's on Fox News and she says, she says out loud, you know, that we talk about saying the quiet part out loud. She says in the interview that since the raid on Mar-a-Lago and since Trump exploded on social media and claimed that it was a, a raid and a siege and an attack on him, that they had raised more money for his reelection than at any time since he left office. And to me, that says it all, that this is essentially a fundraising operation. I mean, that they're going to set the country on fire, going to tell lies about the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago. They're going to do all of this for commercial reasons. Fox, you know, has has done so many of these interviews that end with, give money to me. I don't know. Do you notice this? That I, I constantly oh, yeah. see the Trump organization or Republican candidates. I saw Dr. Oz doing it. And I, you know, They're not alone, right? MSNBC does a lot of lefty stuff, but I don't see the same kind of explicit fundraising going on on the other networks that I see on Fox. 
Well, I think that was shamelessly pioneered by Lindsey Graham. I mean, of course, a lot of them did. When I worked for Ted Cruz and he was running for president, he would say, you know, check out my website or text, blah, 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 at the end. He would always work it in. But Lindsey Graham was utterly shameless during his last election and begging people for donations on Fox News to the point where I remember the hosts were trying to tell him to tone it down. But it's a free-for-all now. And the idea, that's a good point you bring up Laura Trump is on. The Murdochs have not turned against the Trumps when they host Laura Trump and Eric Trump to go on and give the most blatant kind of spin to defend Trump constantly. I, the, the idea that that ever was a thing is, is sort of beyond me. And maybe for more evidence of this, we have some sound from Cash Patel. Does everybody know who Cash Patel is, Will? He was the you know so-called intel guy installed in the final days of the Trump administration. He's got his hands really in everything. And of course, he was one of the people appointed as National Archives representatives for Trump in the final days of his administration, along with the, um, I don't know how to describe him, John Solomon. I used to report to him directly when I worked at the Washington Times. And um, that's just been another kind of free fall into Trumpism. But uh, Cash Patel was going to be one of the point persons for these documents, of course, so they could get first hands on it manufacture news to their liking, but that is sort of falling apart in light of the Mar-a-Lago search. So let's just listen to some sound from Cash Patel about how he thinks of how the declassification process for these documents works. In October of 2020, he issued a sweeping declassification order for every Russiagate document and every single Hillary Clinton document. Then on the way out of the White House, he issued further declassification orders, declassifying whole sets of documents. And this is a key fact that most Americans are missing. President Trump, as a sitting president, is a unilateral authority for declassification. He can literally stand over a set of documents and say, these are now declassified. And that is done with definitive action immediately. He just gets out his declassification wand, waves his hand over the documents, and poof, declassified. Is that how it works? It is straight out of Harry Potter. <laughs> the, way, the way that these guys talk about presidential authority. So I don't know where to begin with this. This is, first of all, an authoritarian mindset right? This is, remember, these are the same people who complained about Hillary Clinton not, not following procedures. Procedures, things that were outside of her authority, you know, that were, uh, about the, the handling of classified material, the handling of government material. Here, there are no procedures. There are explicitly no procedures. Cash Patel is saying he can stand over them, pronounce the magic words. By the way, Amanda, there's nothing written here, right? None of what he's describing, what Patel is describing, involves that Trump has to write anything down. And and John Solomon, who you were quoting before, actually read out loud a statement from Trump's office. Um, John Solomon now representing Trump's office, having been a journalist, let's set that aside for a minute, um, that said that there was a, quote, standing order during Trump's presidency that, and this is the quote from Solomon, documents removed from the Oval Office and taken to the residence were deemed to be declassified the moment he removed them. So in other words, Trump doesn't have to say anything out loud. He doesn't have to write anything down. He just sort of does it. And, and therefore, by fiat, suddenly documents are declassified and are eligible to be taken wherever. So that is a completely Kim Jong-un version of the United States presidency. There is no documentation, as far as we know, that Trump ever wrote down or submitted any paperwork to declassify this stuff. It doesn't even have to be declassified for him to have violated 
these laws that he's accused of violating or may have violated. But the point is that there's no documentation of it. And so the Trumpers have come up with this theory in which no documentation is necessary. Well, I have an idea. Why doesn't Joe Biden just get out the magic classification wand and wave it in the air and say, these are all classified now? Can he do that? He doesn't even have to be there. He can just blink his eyes and wiggle his ears and they're classified once again, right? If that's how this works. Right. The authoritarianism game is never ending, and that's why we should not get into it. By the way, there is, in addition to the absence of evidence, of written evidence that any of this was declassified, the docu- according to the, the search warrant, the documents that the government went in looking for, and then they took out a bunch of them, were in fact many of them marked classified or various degrees of classified, some of them top secret. And hilariously, hilariously, we had Republicans on the Sunday shows this weekend claiming that even if they were marked that way, maybe they weren't anymore. So the written evidence that they can't be taken out and to your private residence is to be ignored. And then the absence of evidence that they were declassified is just to be granted to Trump under these wild theories. But I thought the FBI planted it. The FBI <laughs> planted all the documents that Trump declassified. Is that, is right. that how this works? I mean, yeah, really, just trying to play the logic game it is impossible. But I, I am curious as to what you think. Why do you think he wanted the documents? Was it a part of just the, the chaos of people moving out of the building and throwing stuff in the boxes? Was it something more nefarious? Because what I tend to think, listen, he, he was asked to turn them back over. The FBI already went down there. His lawyer attests in some kind of document saying we turned over all the classified information when they didn't. I mean, maybe it's chaos. Or more likely, Trump wanted documents for leverage over people. This is something that he is obsessed with. I don't know what it was. I mean, but nuclear nuclear material that you can show off to your foreign buddies on the golf course, that makes you seem important, makes you have leverage. If you have the name of a bunch of American spies, potentially leverage over the deep state. I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but the possibilities to me on that end are endless. So I would distinguish here between why the government wanted the documents back and why Trump took them. Um, I think the government wanted the documents back, well, for various reasons. They belong to the government, but I think you've put your finger on one of them, which is that a lot of these documents are extremely valuable for anyone doing espionage against the United States. If you can get nuclear documents, you can get signals intelligence, you can get intercepts, you can get, I mean, these, especially technological information. So it, it doesn't have to be Trump who sells the documents. It can be anyone else. And we know from reporting so far that the government had uh, looked at surveillance video of people going in and out of the room where the documents are stored. So it, Trump can have paid no attention to this. And still, that's a major threat to national security to have people having access in this unsecured or insufficiently secured area to these documents that can be sold. On Trump himself, though, Amanda, I'm, I'm going to play defense for him. I don't believe in almost any case that Donald Trump plans particularly much. You know, in the case of January 6th, we have lots of evidence of him doing conspiracies. But in the case of these documents, I think he simply thought he owned them. He always thought he owned the presidency. He thought he owned the White House. He thought he could stay there after he had lost the election. I think he took these documents with him because he could. He paid very little attention to what was in them when the government said, you have to give them back. He thought it was the government's problem. And the search is the government saying, no, it's your problem. You lied to us. And these documents belong to the United States. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And maybe his motive 
is irrelevant. I really liked how David French uh, framed the choice that the government faces in terms of prosecuting Trump uh, for retaining these classified documents by going back and reviewing how the FBI handled Hillary Clinton. Um, French essentially argues that the Hillary Clinton rule, this is something that uh, I think he he coined for this piece, should be invoked. And what he's getting at is that Hillary Clinton ultimately didn't face criminal charges for mishandling classified information because the government determined she didn't intentionally and willfully mishandle that information. And, you know, there's a quote directly from James Comey where he says, all cases prosecuted previously involved a combination of a clearly intentional and willful mishandling of classified information, vast quantities of materials exposed in such a way to support an interference of intentional misconduct, indications of disloyalty to the United States, or efforts to obstruct justice. So that is the existing standard for prosecuting people of a political stature is Donald Trump. And when David wrote it, I think he's trying to make the point that Trump has exceeded (laughs) those standards in a way that Hillary Clinton did not, although I think a lot of people were confused by it, saying, oh, we should not equate what Hillary Clinton did to what Donald Trump did. But I think he's exactly right. That is the standard. The FBI has laid out these standards. And the idea that Trump retained these documents and his lawyers misrepresented what they had to the FBI clearly meets the standard of obstructing justice, I would think. But I don't, do you think that's a good standard or how do you feel about it? Well, I agree with you about the the overall point here, which is, and I don't have the best recollection of, of the details of the Hillary Clinton episode, but I think it is true that more was done to Hillary than has been done to Trump. That is, she was investigated. She came close to being charged. She was not charged. But all we have so far is a search of Mar-a-Lago. We haven't proceeded to anything greater in the case of Trump. And that what Trump has done exceeds what Hillary did, as David French points out. I, I don't think there is a, a parallel in the Clinton episode to the what Trump did, namely an ongoing resistance to request to return documents, right? I mean, in the case of Trump, we have this long sequence of he takes the documents, the government says, we think you have our stuff. The Trumper, the Trump team is sort of negotiating with them. There's the, there's, the government goes in, gets some of the documents. At some point, there's a, a statement signed by a Trump lawyer, as I think you mentioned, um, that, that says, you, we've, we've handed over everything. And I don't think there's any analog into that in the in the Clinton case. That is a false statement, a provably false statement, because they now ha- went in and got the documents. Um, so there is misrepresentation. There is ongoing failure to return after they are told to return the documents. And all of that speaks to a level of obstruction that I believe was not present in the Clinton case. If we're just bringing up, you know, all these obstruction, things that Trump did, that just pertains to the classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. I mean, it is stunning. I sat down last night and I tried to think of all the charges that Trump is potentially facing right now. And do you want to hear this list? I mean, it is it is insane. Go for Regarding it. Regarding just January 6th, you have, and I'm not saying he's going to actually face charges for all this, but these are the things that are on the table, seriously on the table. Insurrection, seditious conspiracy, interfering with an official proceeding, defrauding the United States, witness tampering, violation of presidential records, 
in violation of the Espionage Act. That is just with January 6th. Then you've got the case up in New York against the Trump Organization where they're talking about fraud, tax evasion, grand larceny, falsification of business records. You go down to Georgia for the Fulton case. You have solicitation to commit election fraud, attempting to interfere with, hinder, or delay election administration and racketeering. Then you have all the civil suits brought by people like Eugene Carroll and the Capitol Hill police, et cetera. And I think sprinkled within all of, the, all of those cases, you're dealing potentially with obstruction of justice. It is stunning. And we keep thinking he gets away with everything. But I just looked at that list that I made for myself and thought, how does he get away with all of that? Well, one reason he gets away with all of it is that he does all of it. I, I mean, so for people like you and me, we look at that and say, there's a reason why Trump is being investigated, has been investigated for all of these things, which is that he's a criminal. He's just one of these people who, you know, goes around breaking the law, doesn't care about rules, moral rules, legal rules, and therefore he gets himself in legal trouble. But for a lot of people, they go the other way. They're like, their attitude is, he's charged with all of this stuff because the government is out to get him. So this surplus of charges against him becomes perversely the pattern that these people see is, is the criminal conspiracy against Donald Trump. And a lot of Republican office holders like Lindsey Graham have fallen into that, sort of talking about how the FBI is out to get Trump because the FBI is constantly involved because, as you and I know, the FBI is enforcing laws and Trump is breaking them. The other thing about this is it would be really weird, but it could happen, that the outcome of these investigations is that Trump skates on the big charges, you know, attempting to overthrow the government of the United States. He doesn't get end up getting charged with that, but that somehow if he gets nailed for anything legally, it's this Al Capone thing, right? Capone got nailed for tax evasion. Uh, it can't be a minor charge. I... Well, this handling of government records, Amanda, honestly, does it rate next to staging a coup? I, I don't think it does. Well, but it, it does if he's hanging out nuclear secrets for his Saudi friends on the LIV golf course. I mean, yeah, I, <laughs> that sounds I, like a joke, but I, it could... Uh, it may be, but can I wave people away from that? To me, this sounds a lot like the P-tape. Remember the whole allegation about him being in a hotel room? And, and, and a whole bunch of people who hate Trump yeah. went in for this story, and it turned out, not, as far as we know, not to be true. And then if you go out with the story about, you know, he's selling nuclear secrets, and it turns out that there's no evidence for that, then, then they're going to say that, see, we can't believe any of it. So I'm a little bit leery of that one. Well, we can let all those various stories and conspiracies play out for themselves. But uh, what we do know, this is really shocking, but not surprising to see an intelligence bulletin that went out by the FBI and DHS on Friday night. I'm just going to read from some of it. FBI and DHS have observed an increase in threats to federal law enforcement and to a lesser extent other law enforcement and government officials following the FBI's recent execution of a search warrant in Palm Beach, Florida. Shocking, not surprising goes on, these threats are occurring primarily online and across multiple platforms, including social media sites, web forums, video sharing, and image boards. And here's the kicker. These threats include ideas about placing a so-called dirty bomb in front of the FBI headquarters and issuing general calls for civil war and armed rebellion. It also goes on to discuss the Ohio gunman who tried to enter the FBI's office in Cincinnati. He was wearing a technical vest, had an AR rifle, a nail gun. When officers approached him, he fled the scene. He was chased. He was killed. But 
what FBI and DHS are telling us is that they expect to see more of this. And then over the weekend, I'm sure you saw the news that there was a man that went to the Capitol, armed, shot into the air, killed himself, and there were armed protesters outside the FBI in Phoenix. And so it seems like things are getting uncomfortably hot. What do you think? Yeah, they certainly are. And I'm just going to come out and say it. This is because the Republican Party has decided to demonize law enforcement. The guy in Cincinnati is a January 6th guy, as far as we know. His social media posts indicate he was there on January 6th. So he was he was already provoked once to a scene of violence, if not committing violence himself, by Republican lies. It's happening again. The attacks this time are not on the Congress of the United States. They're on the FBI. But, you know, we have another, we have these cases of attacks on the FBI now. I think it's important for people to understand that what the Republican, first of all, the Republican Party's pretense of being the party of law and order, we can just forget that now. That is that is a joke. The Republican Party is for your local police, but when any law enforcement agency goes after Republicans, namely the FBI in this case, the Republican Party turns on law enforcement. And the entire party, going right up through Elise Stefanik, the number three person in the House, and Kevin McCarthy claiming that the FBI is weaponized and politicized, the entire leadership of the Republican Party is attacking law enforcement. They are doing so, furthermore, to a far greater extent than Democrats ever did with defunding police. Defund police was a slogan that some activists had. You, you had to go to a protest where people would chant it. You did not hear leaders of the Democratic Party in Congress or anywhere else saying that the, that the police were evil and had to be quite the contrary. We have the leadership of the Republican Party spreading this message that law enforcement is, is, is corrupt and is evil, and it is leading to this violence. Um, and, and it is absolutely an extension of what happened on January 6th. I think you're absolutely right. It's not a coincidence that the people who are most in on defending, downplaying what happened on January 6th are also the most agitated against taking action against the FBI for the search. Uh, Paul Gosar, you know, Paul Gosar from Arizona, he, he tweeted last week, we must destroy the FBI. We must save America. I stand with Donald J. Trump. And I just want to play this sound from CBS reporter Scott McFarland, who is doing a tremendous job not only tracking all of the January 6th prosecutions of the rioters, which is a momentous task in itself, but just staying on the overall story. And just listen to some sound about how he framed what's going on. Immediately, we see this quick acceleration of ferocious chatter on social media platforms, on chat groups, from potential extremists targeting the judge who signed the search warrant. They're trying to deduce who the FBI agents were who were part of that search, but that's just an inflammation of an already dangerous situation stemming from January 6th. The prosecution of the Capitol riots has created its own radicalization. The D.C. federal judges handling the January 6th cases are getting vile, vulgar death threats. The people who are part of the investigation are getting threats. The prosecution itself is radicalizing people. Now we have a force multiplier a search of Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, that's really interesting how he described it as a force multiplier, because I, I think that's exactly right. You had people who are already upset, uh, agitated, organizing, and this just fueled them even further. And now, now it feels like they have a direct target. That's law enforcement and the FBI. 
Yeah, and it sort of speaks to the this, the complete cynicism of the Republican leadership. So we were talking about this in the context of Fox News, the way that the the Fox News anchors are playing to the audience by feeding them lies they know the audience wants to hear. What we now have is in the in the context of the Mar-a-Lago search is the leadership of the House of the Republican Party feeding their political base these lies they know they want to hear. So they're spreading this stuff about the FBI, and these are children. These leaders of the of the Republican Party today and they think that there are no consequences to their acts. And every time there is an attack on an FBI field office or a threat against the FBI or a threat against a judge, that is that is the consequences. That is what happens in the real world when you spread these lies. And one other thing about this, Donald Trump at his rallies is still, he is attacking the prosecution of January 6th. He is attacking the law enforcement officers. He goes around saying, who shot Ashley Babbitt? That is absolutely sort of the Republican version of, of all cops are bastards, of, you know, that cops are corrupt. You can't trust them. And they are fanning this fire of extremism and violence. Yeah, there are some Republicans who are looking around saying, really, what are we doing here, guys? I saw Larry Hogan on one of the Sunday shows saying how ridiculous and terrible it is that Republicans are attacking the FBI. But you are right. There is not a strong signal pushing back on this. And we talked about Fox News earlier, how they were falling in line behind Trump. And I, I will say on this, there appears to be some degree of discomfort. I'm not applauding them for this but let's just play some sound from Steve Ducey, of all people, on the Fox and Friends morning show, talking about how he thinks it needs to be tamped down. We just know that right now, given the fact that there is a suggestion of there are a lot of online, very specific, apparently very specific threats against very specific agents uh, at the FBI and whatnot, it would it would be great for everybody to tamp down the, the rhetoric against the FBI because the FBI simply was doing what the DOJ asked them to do. The attorney general is the boss of the guy at the FBI, of all the people at the FBI. So, you know, with all of these threats going around, it would ultimately be great if the former president, who has always been a great supporter of law enforcement, as opposed with a thousand police departments coast to coast, it would be great if he called for an end to the violent rhetoric against federal law enforcement, and in particular, the FBI that was just doing their job. But as Trey Gowdy pointed out last night, uh, for you to look at this situation and think that Democrats and Republicans have been treated the same over the last few years, you'd have to be looking at a different situation. Yeah. I mean, Greg leg Bethel, irons for, for Navarro. Greg talked about that, too. He said, you know, it's interesting that the Democrats or progressives are now worried about protecting law enforcement when they weren't, right. you know, years ago during the raids. But no one is for the violence of FBI agents no. or, uh, you know, any of these individuals that are in law enforcement. Right. If you want to personify that search, look at the attorney general of the United States. Mayor Garland is the one who has staked his entire reputation on it. If there's something if there's not something really big there. He's done. What a mess that is. We know this is bad. Donald Trump, please do something. And would you please, people, not focus on the FBI and just go after Merrick Garland? Right? Is that is that the play here? Yeah, we, we, we give him partial points for saying don't go after the FBI. They're only executing the search. At but the does Steve Ducey do- really think Donald Trump is going to say, no, no, guys, back off the FBI after the FBI, you know, raided his house in this unprecedented blah, blah, blah. I mean, what planet are you living on? Like, they are just constantly negotiating with their own hostage takers. 
<laughs> Absolutely. And and Amanda, I mean, just, just to back up to the, what Ducey actually says there, you know, he doesn't say, Mr. Former President, you need to come out and say this. He says repeatedly, it would be great if, you know, they sound like, remember when Republicans used to complain that like liberals believe, had moral relativism and they weren't strong enough in, in expressing what was morally right? Here it's, it's open and shut what's morally right to do. But instead, what we get from the Fox News host and occasionally from the better people in the Republican Party, not even most of them, is this stuff about, it would be great if maybe you guys would say that, you know, gosh, we shouldn't go around shooting FBI. It's not their fault. And then the additional relativism of, you know, if you want to blame somebody, blame the boss of the FBI, blame the attorney general. It's pathetic. No, it's like Steve Ducey almost had a decent point. And then, of course, you had Brian Kilmaid and Ainsley, whatever her last name is, swooping in to say, hey, but but remember, Democrats are the really bad guys here. This is bad, but Democrats are really bad. And if you want to focus your energy, focus on the big Democrat in charge. Because remember, we're always the good guys, even though, Donald Trump, please, would you stop people from wanting to shoot up the FBI? I mean, it is really a pretzel kind of headspace that you have to be in to sit on that couch and constantly have to stop yourself from making a pure, simple, honest, necessary point because you have to caveat it for your audience so badly to show them, oh, well, we're still on your side. We hate Democrats too. Yeah, absolutely. I could not agree with you more. And and I would just point out that, you know, when there was the George Floyd stuff, Republicans were the people who, when Black Americans said, hey, a lot of our people seem to be getting killed unjustly by police. Republicans said, oh, you know, don't fuss about that. Back the blue. And now Republicans are playing exact, doing exactly the same thing, saying, why do you keep prosecuting our people? Therefore, the police are, are not trustworthy here. They're saying the FBI is not trustworthy. At best, they're saying, don't blame the line officers, don't blame the FBI, go after the attorney general. What happens when somebody takes a shot at the attorney general? This rhetoric needs to stop. I agree. Okay. Well, before we go, let's listen to a woman who does have a clear line of sight about the problems in front of us, um, who never hesitates to speak uh, honestly about the situation. Of course, I'm talking about Liz Cheney, whose primary is tomorrow. She is not likely to win. Um, But throughout her candidacy, she has made January 6th the central focus of that campaign. She has never shirked from it. Her voters didn't want to hear it. But she has decided that is what she would talk about in the final days of her campaign. And we do have her closing argument in an ad. I'm just going to warn you, it is long. But I do think we do deserve to hear it in its entirety. Uh, So here's Liz Cheney's closing argument. As election day nears, I want to talk to citizens across our great state and all across our country. America cannot remain free if we abandon the truth. The lie that the 2020 presidential election was stolen is insidious. It preys on those who love their country. It is a door Donald Trump opened to manipulate Americans to abandon their principles, to sacrifice their freedom, to justify violence, to ignore the rulings of our courts and the rule of law. This is Donald Trump's legacy, but it cannot be the future of our nation. History has shown us over and over again how these types of poisonous lies destroy free nations. Like many candidates across this country, my opponents in Wyoming have said that the 2020 election was rigged and stolen. 
No one who understands our nation's laws, no one with an honest, honorable, genuine commitment to our Constitution would say that. It is a cancer that threatens our great republic. If we do not condemn these lies, if we do not hold those responsible to account, we will be excusing this conduct, and it will become a feature of all elections. America will never be the same. Nothing in our public life is more important than the preservation of the miracle given to us by God and our founding fathers. Nothing. Here's my pledge to you. I will work every day to ensure that our exceptional nation long endures. My children and your children must grow up in an America where we have honorable and peaceful transitions of power, not violent confrontations, intimidation, and thuggery, where we are governed by laws and not by men, where we are led by people who love this country more than themselves. No matter how long we must fight, this is a battle we will win. Millions of Americans across our nation, Republicans, Democrats, Independents, stand united in the cause of freedom. We are stronger, more dedicated, and more determined than those trying to destroy our republic. This is our great task, and we will prevail. I hope you will join me in this fight. There it is. And it doesn't sound like she's going to disappear from public life should she lose tomorrow. No, it doesn't. I mean, a couple of things about this ad strike me. One is her emphasis on the very, very big picture. I mean, she's talking, she says, history has shown us, you know. And this she's isn't about, water rights in Wyoming. <laughs> this is total, totally not water rights, not cattle, not agriculture at all. And so she talks about history. She talks about the history of the destruction of free nations, the cancer that threatens our republic. Our nation must long endure, that we must have peaceful transitions of power, plural. She is talking about the entire history of the United States going back and going forward. So she is totally not focused on winning a House seat in Wyoming, although she hopes to do so. And the other thing, Amanda, is some of what she says there suggests to me that she expects to lose this primary and that it's just the beginning of her future, which is either a presidential campaign or some kind of national movement. She says at the end, no matter how long we must fight, we'll win the battle. We're more dedicated. We're more determined. And she says, I hope you'll join me in this fight. Uh, it's not even really about, uh, did you hear anything about Wyoming in the ad? No, there's a lot of royal we. We, we. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So she's talking about a fight that sounds like it will go on for a long time, and I agree with her, but it's not a fight for the Republican nomination for a House seat in Wyoming. Yeah, that's right. And I know there's a lot of speculation about her running for president. I, I, I've expressed this before. I, I do not see how someone will be permitted to actually challenge Trump in a fair contest um, at under the current structure of the Republican National Committee. I, I don't know how that would work. But here's one thing I am looking for in the returns tomorrow. Let's say her opponent, Harriet Hageman, beats her by, let's say it's 70-30. It's a walloping. Liz Cheney only gets 30% of the vote. I would want to know, those 30% of Republican primary voters, and I understand she encouraged some crossover voting, but there's just not a lot of Democrats in Wyoming. Let's set it low, 20 to 30% of Republican primary voters in Wyoming, are they actually going to cross over and support Hageman or Trump in a general election? I don't see it. If you're voting for Liz Cheney after she made those kinds of arguments throughout the primary, I do not think you suddenly turn and vote 
for the MAGA choice. And so what you have left are the abstainers, right? Republicans cannot win general elections if they continually lose 25 or 30 percent of the Cheney vote, let's call it. They will not win. It is not possible. You cannot turn out the MAGA base enough. You can't juice them up anymore if 20 or 30 percent of your own people are sitting on the sidelines. And so I think that is where we will see, let's call it the leverage that potentially a Liz Cheney could hold over a 2024 contest. And I'm not sure she has to actually run for president to do it. Yeah, I don't think she has to win at all. And I don't think that's what she's playing for. I mean, I think it's pretty clear by now from the fact that she has laid down her seat, laid down her leadership post already and is now prepared to lay down her seat, that her priority is not her career. Her priority is she recognizes an evil in our time, a very great evil, a very dangerous evil, and she is determined to defeat that evil. That's the whole game for her. I mean, it's not, I, I hesitate to call it a game. It's not a game. It's the opposite of a game. The stakes could not be higher, and she's willing to lose for that. And your math is exactly right. It doesn't get Liz Cheney nominated in a Republican primary. It doesn't necessarily get Liz Cheney elected in a, in a, as a write-in in a, in, a, in a state like Wyoming. What it does is it deprives Donald Trump, first of all, and secondly, anyone who tries to do what Donald Trump did to lie about elections to, you know, turn the United States into an authoritarian country from getting enough votes to win a general election. She just wants to have enough people who are in, I hesitate to call it the middle, because these people can be very ideologically conservative, but they believe in democracy. They believe in the rule of law. They will not vote for Trump. They will vote against Trump. And that is all that is necessary to prevent the great evil from returning. Well, as we close, we will watch what happens with the Cheney race tomorrow closely, but I want to leave people with this idea. There are 535 members of Congress who come and go, win and lose their elections all the time. Rarely do they make history. Rarely do they bend the will of a Congress in the right direction. And Liz Cheney has already succeeded on that front, which makes her more impactful than thousands of other members who have served. So that's all for today. Uh, Charlie Sykes will be back tomorrow. And Will, thank you again for joining me for a Summer Monday. Thank you, Amanda. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again. <laughs>